Welcome to Design World's Technology Tuesdays podcast, conversations about new technologies and approaches for design engineering. Hello, I'm Paul Heaney, and welcome to Design World's Technology Tuesdays podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's topic is vision systems, and I'm speaking today with Philip Friedland, an application engineer with IDS Imaging Development Systems, Inc. Welcome, Philip. Thanks, Paul. Good to be here. Well, I think we should just jump right into uh, vision systems. Exciting topic. Uh, Philip, what would you say are some general trends you know, that you've seen in uh, machine vision cameras, as, as well as with IDS products in that uh, particular niche? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different types of applications for machine vision. And so each of these applications are going to require different camera properties. And so that's why there's a wide range of sensors, interfaces, and form factors available in the machine vision market. I can definitely highlight a few trends within the IDS camera portfolio. Okay. Our cameras are getting smaller, uh, faster, and smarter. So an example of a smaller camera would be the XLS camera family. This is our smallest board level camera, approximately 30 millimeters by 30 millimeters. And it's a single board camera with a USB interface, a USB 3 interface. Mm -hmm. um, it's available with different lens and sensor options ranging up to 20 megapixels. And of course, this type of camera would be useful in space constrained applications but it also has a cost-effective design and that makes it valuable for uh, volume projects and price-sensitive applications. Okay. An example of a faster camera would be our Warp 10 camera family. This is our fastest camera uh, in our portfolio and that's because it has a 10 gigabit ethernet interface. This also happens to be our largest camera in the portfolio and um, that can help with dissipating some of the heat generated by the sensor and the 10 giggy interface, but it also allows us to incorporate our largest sensors. And those are the largest sensors, both in the physical size of the sensor, as well as the resolution of the sensor. So one of the largest sensors is a two inch sensor and it's 45 megapixels. Wow. 10, yeah. 10 giggy is 10 times faster than Giggy, and um, it's also faster than USB 3 as well. This makes it possible to use high bandwidth sensors. So that would be, you know, very fast sensors and or very high resolution sensors. Very cool. Yep. Yeah. So an example of how our cameras are getting smarter would be the NXT camera family. Um, this is an industrial IoT edge device, and it's capable of doing the image processing on board the camera using a deep learning based neural network. So combine that with IDS Lighthouse, which is our cloud platform for training neural networks. It's possible for teams to quickly train and deploy a computer vision neural network into their application. AI really is everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Philip, I always find it uh, helpful to learn about you know, maybe some interesting applications for any component uh, that we're talking about. And I, I do know that our, our engineering audience really enjoys hearing about where different components are best used. So could you maybe talk a little bit about some typical applications that you've seen recently, or, or maybe there's ones that you deal with a lot over and over in your field? 
Yeah. So uh, logistics is a big market that uses our cameras um, okay. where they're automating processes like package routing, documentation and traceability within uh, warehouses and distribution centers. So um, one of our customers needs to capture images of incoming and outgoing goods so that they can have proof and documentation in the case of complaints. So previously, this organization had their employees manually photographing the incoming and outgoing goods, um, but they were able to automate this process by basically building a portal where all the goods are passing through and four cameras are simultaneously capturing um, the incoming and outgoing goods from all sides. There's also some OCR or optical character recognition in the image processing component of this application. So that allows these cameras to capture the order numbers and processing numbers so that that can be uh, documented along with the images for complete traceability. Okay. Another example of some applications are in agriculture and farming. So in these cases, a lot of times customers are using our FA camera family because that provides an IP65 67 protection against wet and dirty environments, which is mm -hmm. often the case with farming. So take, for example, one of our customers who has a lettuce harvesting application. Machinery is lifting the lettuce out of the field, as well as removing the outer leaves. So then at this point, machine vision and AI comes into play because it's identifying a precise cut point to separate the head of lettuce from the stem, which was previously a manual operation. That is very, very cool. Yeah. And another application um, that's really interesting is a student-led robotics application, which is for more sustainable agriculture without the excess use of herbicides. So of course, herbicides present a risk to both humans and the environment. So mm -hmm. using less is good for everybody. Um, and so they developed an autonomous mobile robot that is capable of navigating through the field, navigating through the rows of produce, and as well as identifying weeds so that they can be mechanically removed with a robotic trowel. So the machine vision aspect of this application is both in the autonomous navigation through the field, as well as identifying the weeds, which again, that is a deep learning algorithm. Philip, are there, are there any applications, you know, you're, we're describing some typical ones here that you see over and over. Are there any maybe not so typical uh, applications you've seen for, you know, industrial machine vision applications, you know, something that, that might surprise some of our engineers, like, oh, I never thought to use a, a camera there or in that way. Yeah, definitely. Aside from the typical industrial applications that take place in factories, warehouses, farms, um, there are tons of really cool machine vision applications. Uh, basically, machine vision can be used anytime the application needs visual information from the real world. So one cool area where our customers are developing different applications is in sports engineering. So within this field, there's some applications that are based on ball tracking. Um, essentially high speed cameras are capable of capturing the velocity of a ball after it's been struck. And then using a physical simulation, you can determine the simulated 
trajectory of that ball in an augmented reality application. So the advantage here is that athletes can now train in a smaller facility using augmented reality and still have an idea of the trajectory of their balls without needing to practice in a full-sized arena. That is def that's definitely a surprising one that I, I didn't see coming, Philip. Yeah, definitely. Um, another sp uh, ball tracking application is um, tr uh, tracking athletes and when they take shots versus whether they score goals. And so basically by providing analytics on what types of shots and what factors into scoring allows the team to score more in the game. Um, but yeah, in both these ball tracking applications, you're basically capturing the athlete's performance, which mm -hmm. uh, can be used to help improve their game. Another uh, sports engineering application is body tracking. So um, basically using video to capture the motion of a golf swing is an indispensable tool that golf pros are, are using to help their clients improve and perfect their swing. Um, with, within machine vision, you're basically getting a high speed video recording. You're doing some image processing to track the motion of that golf swing. And that provides even further insight to the, to the golf pros to help mm -hmm. them compare different swings analyze the swing and help their clients improve their shot. Another body tracking application is bike fitting. So um, cycling is a very repetitive sport. Um, an incorrectly fitted bicycle can decrease performance as well as increase the risk for injury. So there's basically these bike labs where athletes get on a, on a laboratory style bike um, Machine vision is measuring various joint angles as they're, as they're going through the cycling motion. And then that data is combined with force sensors on the bicycle. And this way the team can make minor changes to the geometry of the bicycle and get very um, exact insight into comparing the different geometries and analyzing how that impacts performance. Okay. Maybe we should go back to basics just a little bit here, Philip. Could you maybe walk us through, like, what would the basic steps be that an engineer should follow to select the appropriate industrial camera for any given application? Like, what, what would your recommendations be here for the basic steps? Yeah, absolutely. I can go into that. So um, one thing that needs to be considered is what uh, interface you're using to communicate between the camera and the host machine. And this interface is oftentimes dictated by the host machine specifications for the application. But choosing the interface is going to impact both the speed of your image acquisition, as well as the possible cable lengths for the application. So interfaces that we offer for our cameras in order from slowest to fastest would be USB 2, then gig E, gigabit ethernet, USB 3, and then 10 giggy. Typically, Ethernet cameras are uh, capable of having longer cable lengths, but it is still possible to have long cable lengths with USB cameras when you use active optical cables. Another thing that needs to be considered is the form factor of the camera. Will this application provide its own enclosure for the camera, in which case perhaps a board level camera would be useful, 
or does this application require that the camera provides its own protective housing? And we provide housings that are IP30 rated, which uh, provide ingress protection against small debris, or IP6567 rated, which provides dust protection and water protection. One of the major things that you need to consider when choosing the camera is which sensor you're gonna use. IDS does not manufacture CMOS sensors. We're sourcing these sensors from the major sensor manufacturers such as Sony, OnSemi, E2V, and a few others. So you have, there's a wide range of sensors available in the market and you need to basically decide whether you wanna use a color sensor or a monochrome sensor, whether you want that sensor to have a global shutter or a rolling shutter, and what the resolution requirement is for the application. Finally, you need to choose your lens. Um, there's different options for lenses that you can use. You could go with no lens whatsoever and design your own custom optics. You could also choose an S-mount lens, which is kind of a compact M12 thread size lens. You could choose a C-mount lens, which is a bit bigger than the S-mount, and provides better image quality, or you could go all the way up to a TFL lens, which is even bigger than the C-mount, and that's typically reserved for very large sensors. The lens is really an important selection because this is the actual physical instrument that's projecting an image onto the image sensor. So your image is only gonna be as good as the lens that you choose. Mm -hmm. It's important to make sure that you choose the right lens for your sensor and make sure that you're matching the lens specifications with the sensor size and sensor resolution. Wonderful. Um, so what are, what are staying on kind of the same topic, what, what would you say are some of the more frequently asked questions that you receive from, from your customers when they're trying to select a, a camera for their application, Phil? Yeah, one of the common questions that come, comes up is uh, what sensor resolution should I select for my application? When we're trying to figure this out, our goal is to basically determine the minimum required resolution for this particular application. And then you want to basically choose a sensor that provides at least that level of resolution, if not an additional margin on top of that. Um, there is an advantage to going with the minimum possible resolution for your application, and that's because that decreases the bandwidth requirement for your images, which allows you to increase the speed of your image acquisition. So there's a couple different ways to look into choosing the right sensor resolution. You can do a pure quantitative analysis where you're basically looking at the total field of view as well as the minimum feature size required. Um, for example, in a 2D barcode scanning application, you need about two or three pixels across the smallest, the thinnest line in that barcode. So you know, um, you can get an idea of how uh, small your pixel, um, how many pixels you need on that dimension of that smallest line, and then multiply that by your field of view to determine the total field, uh, the total resolution requirement. Another way to figure this out is to take a picture with a cell phone. Cell phones typically provide uh, pretty high resolution images, and then you can scale that down um, using Microsoft Paint, for example, and you want to basically scale that down to the minimum resolution where you can still observe the smallest feature with the human eye. Rule of thumb is that if you can see something in the image, you can develop an algorithm to detect it as well. Interesting. 
Another common question that we get is about software compatibility. So will this particular camera work with this other particular third-party software? Um, we provide an API for developing custom uh, applications for controlling the camera and acquiring images. But in our latest generation of cameras, which are known as UI plus cameras, these have been around for about five years. They're all vision standard compliant. So that's the USB 3 vision standard and the Gigi vision standard. And these are industry standardized protocols for communicating with imaging devices. The vision standard is based on the Genicam standard and it's governed by our Automation Trade Association, A3 Association for Advancing Automation. Basically, if you have a vision standard compliant camera, that's gonna be plug and play with any third party software that's also vision standard compliant. And this allows third party software companies to develop vendor independent applications. And there's no need to use vendor specific drivers or APIs. And a couple examples of some third party software that's vision standard compliant are MATLAB and LabVIEW. All right. Well, lastly, let's, maybe we should wrap up and and could you give us an idea, Philip, of what advancements in vision technology our, our listeners should expect to see in the coming years? Yeah. So aside from the trends of smaller, faster, and smarter that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, um, I'm expecting to see an increase in the growing adoption of deep learning within the field of computer vision. So previously, historically, um, rules-based image processing was the main way to solve image processing tasks. And deep learning and machine learning was really reserved for very challenging problems that could only be solved with deep learning. And that's because historically, this was a much harder solution to implement. Now we're seeing lots of helpful tools that, makes it, that make it much easier to implement a deep learning solution. Now, deep learning is not a replacement for rules-based image processing. There are still going to be certain applications that are just much better solved with rules-based image processing, but the development process is totally different when you're developing a rules-based image processing algorithm versus a deep learning-based image processing algorithm. To develop a rules-based image processing algorithm, you really need specialized knowledge in how to use these um, somewhat complicated computer vision libraries. Whereas with deep learning, it's more of a data labeling and image labeling problem. So to develop a rules-based imaging algorithm, you need a software engineer. Whereas to develop a deep learning algorithm, what you need is a domain expert who can correctly label the images. And this opens up the door for non-technical, non-software engineers to contribute to developing image processing solutions labor shortages, wage inflation. These are key drivers of why um, organizations need to automate more of their processes. Mm -hmm. Take quality inspection, for example. Um, this is oftentimes a manual process that could actually be automated with computer vision. And I think automation is sometimes mischaracterized as stealing jobs, where of course some jobs will be eliminated, but it's also creating new opportunities for these employees. These mm -hmm. quality inspectors are domain experts and they, they're the ones that could um, label the training data 
for maintaining and developing a deep learning solution for an automated computer vision application. Um, in the coming years, I'm expecting to see deep learning and computer vision to become much more accessible to organizations that previously were lacking the technical expertise to implement this type of solution. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch for sure. Well, thank you, Philip, for all of this great insight on machine vision and vision systems. Uh, this is really such excellent background for anyone who's working in this part of the world of automation and engineering design. So where can listeners find out a little more information on IDS on the web? Can you give us a website or a link? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our website for North American customers is ids-imaging.us. Great. And thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Design World's Technology Tuesdays podcasts or check out past episodes at soundcloud.com slash design dash world. And you can always get the latest need to know engineering information at www.designworldonline.com. Thanks again for listening and hope to see you again next time. This has been a Design World Network podcast. Design World is published by WTWH Media.